This is Renew Church OC. We're a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for listening. I'm Pastor Wilson. Join us on our Facebook page to watch our Sunday service at 1030. And join our Zoom watch parties to meet our community. We have watch parties for every life stage to help you re-socialize after being stuck at home for a few months. There's a bunch of other links to give you access to our events, small groups, and to invest in our church community. 2020 has been surreal. I think we're on trauma as we process a pandemic, racial injustice, and a recession. It's like we're living in three bad movies. We are walking through the book of James in our how-to series because we need his word to give us wisdom and direction in this time of chaos. For the first three weeks, we are tackling how to fight addiction with a focus on pornography. We're all feeling deep loneliness and pain over the pandemic, and many of us have seen our addictions escalate to numb the pain. If that's you, you're not alone, and you don't have to fight alone. We don't heal in shame and isolation. I hope you find Jesus' love in your darkest sin and that it will draw you towards him and community. Enjoy the sermon. All right, uh, for our sermon, we always do a breakout question and we spend about five minutes with our small groups and watch parties discussing these questions. So our question for today is, when do you feel most alive and when do you feel most dead? Okay, when do you feel most alive and when do you feel most dead? And if you're not in a Zoom watch party, you have five minutes to join one. It's plenty of time. Again, go ahead, uh, look at our descriptions and find a, a Zoom watch party that fits your life stage. And we'd love to meet you. Okay, I'll be back in five minutes. All right, I hope you had a great time talking with your small group. Um, when I think about what makes me come most alive, a lot of it is my ability to pastor and shepherd our church. I tell people I'm a Merriam and Barium pastor. So my, my hope and, and calling, I think, is to be able to walk people through all of their life stages. And this has been an extremely exciting time for our church. We actually have three new engaged couples, I think within a month. So um, Rocco and Rachel got engaged. Uh, Josh and Amy, super excited for them as well. And also Jason and Danielle. Uh, two of these couples actually met at Renew. It's our, our seventh and eighth couple meeting at Renew and getting engaged or married. We do better than coffee meets bagel, right? And so um, I just love being a part of their journey. I, me and my wife feel close to each couple. We were doing premarital for for some of them. Uh, we've been walking with them, seeing them fall in love, you know, hearing the gossip, which that's the kind of gossip I f don't feel any guilt about, um, who likes who. And then, and then just watching them come all the way to engagement. And my hope is to see them married, to hold their firstborn. And if I outlive them to literally like be at their funeral and care for their family, that's that's the kind of pastor um, I hope to be, and that's the kind of pastor that I really, I really, um, pastoring that I really enjoy is that watching people grow up in a way. Um, some of these, some of the people I've seen 
get married are part of my um, college ministry, you know. So I've had 10 years with some of these people who have gotten engaged and married and um, will become pregnant soon. So that's been super life-giving to me over the last few weeks. Um, but this last few days have also felt like death. And I, don't, I know a lot of you have been talking to me and reaching out to me about um, a pastor in Hacienda Heights charged with sexual assault. And, um, you know, it's, I've seen this story play out many times. And it's so easy for me to demonize those pastors, uh, to want them to go to hell and prison. And this time it's felt completely different. He's been a close friend of mine for many years now, but especially in seminary, we were part of this like little crew that always hung out. I felt like I saw him every other day. Um, a few months ago, he's sitting in my patio. We're talking and praying for each other. And so I am, I feel so much turmoil and trauma. I don't know how to process this, to be honest. Um, there's a part of me that just really, really wants uh, him to be vindicated, uh, that that believes when he pleads not guilty that he is, and and I want him to be innocent. But more than that, I want the truth to come out. I want light to be shed on this situation because light does vindicate us when we're innocent, or it reveals um, the sins we've committed. Um, there's a part of me that. Um, always wants to believe these women who have come forward because I know the kind of courage it takes uh, to share um, those traumas. And, and um, I have al I've always encouraged women who have gone through abuse to go to the police. I've held one woman's hand uh, to the police before to report um, the misconduct that had happened. And so... That's always been a part of me, being an older brother to my little sister um, and to many little sisters. And so I just feel so torn up um, in this and it's brought so much uh, grief and anger and sadness to me and to so many of my friends who grew up uh, at my church and uh, we were sister churches with, with this church. So we interacted all the time. We did retreats together. We grew up together. Um, and he was really a leader for us as well. And so um, that's felt like death. Uh, I, I do want to pause here and just kind of talk to our community in this moment and say that, you know, um, if you have gone through sexual assault, especially in Renew, uh, if you felt uh, harassed or even just lewd jokes, um, please talk to our leadership team. Uh, I'm always available, but also we have women on our leadership team. Pastor Chrissy, Kristen uh, Whitmore, Jonathan's wife, and Nina, my wife, Joanne, Dave's wife. All of us are available, and, and we want to know so that we can make sure no one else is victimized, so that we can uh, deal uh, directly with the person involved and so that we can help you uh, file a, a police report if that's something you want to do. And so we are committed to keeping Renew safe and we know that that's part of that is fighting uh, these behaviors um, and, and they do happen. And no one's bulletproof. No one is exempt. No one, no one gets a pass. So even if it's me, um, I want you to talk to 
another leader and they will facilitate a conversation or they will uh, help through a mediation process with our leadership. Okay, so no one is exempt. Uh, no one gets a pass. And, and we want to be um, a part of the solution as a church. Well, with that um, and, and with the concept of life and death, I'm transitioning to James. We are doing a how-to series. And during the next two more weeks, we're doing a series of how to fight uh, addiction, especially sexual addiction. And so this is a, the second part of our series. You're welcome to listen to the first one from last week. James is really derived of Proverbs, uh, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. James is also a wisdom literature and the Sermon on the Mount. And out of this Jewish construct, especially when you look at Prover Proverbs and Psalms, they have a concept of life and death. But their concept of life and death isn't one point in time. You don't have life alone in conception and death alone when you breathe your last breath. Life and death were seen as gradiences or degreed in the Jewish mind. So you can be dead as you live. You could progress towards death in your life. And then you can have more life, a more abundant life. We see this again and again in Psalms and Proverbs, in Job, as Job is facing so many deaths as he lives, the deaths relationally of his wife and children, death financially as he loses his wealth, death in his health. We see this in, in the Psalms, 88, it closes out with darkness is my closest friend. You see this deep emotional death and despair. So we can experience death in so many ways and see it increase and expand in our life. But there's also life. We can have joy in our bones. We can have the joy of seeing an offspring um, flourish and thrive. We can have laughter as we um, enjoy friendship, as we eat well, as we're healthy. All of that is more life. And so in the Jewish mind, life and death are gradiences, and we can experience both in our life. Now hold that in your mind as we read James chapter 1, 13 through 15. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He, cho he chose to give birth through the word of truth, and we might, that we might be a kind of first fruit of all his creation. The first thing I want you to notice in, is in James chapter 1, verse 13, and also in James chapter 1, 16 and 17. It says that when we are tempted, we need to know that God is not tempting us. And in 16, it's saying the same thing. Don't be deceived to think that God gives evil, that he tempts us, that he wants us to fall. No, he gives only 
and every good and perfect gift. You know, this is in comparison to the many religions that James is contrasting with the Christian faith. Because in pagan religions, almost all of them were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And these gods were often just superhumans, right? They had immense power, and yet they were flawed like humans are. They get jealous, they get hateful, they get envious, they go on spurts of anger. And so when a city was in ruins because of earthquake or plague, it's because a god got angry. It's because a god was enacting violence and, and was throwing a fit. But James is saying, that's not our God. That's not Yahweh. That's not Jesus. He doesn't do tempt us into evil. Um, he only gives good and perfect gifts to his children. But I think that's just the easy way to see God. When we go through hardship, when we um, see trials in our life, or even when we ourselves sin, I often hear people blame God. And I often have that almost knee-jerk reaction. I mean, we look at Adam, the first human, and what happens when he sins? What happens when he disobeys God and eats the forbidden fruit? He looks at his wife and he looks at God and he's like, you gave me this woman, right? This woman caused me to sin and you're the one who gave her to me. So he's blaming Eve. He's blaming God for his sin. We need to know that God is not the source of temptation or evil. In fact, when you look at this passage in 1 Corinthians, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you, you can endure it. God's function in our temptation is to put a a cap on it, a limit on it so that we can bear it. His function is to be faithful to us so that he's with us in it. And lastly, he gives us a way out. Don't fight your best friend. Don't fight your closest ally. Don't blame your father when he's there to support you. So where does temptation come from? Well, James makes it clear that each person is is tempted when he is dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, if you look at this word enticed in the Greek, um, it conjures a, tra a trap or a snare for animals. Uh, one of the random things that I'm interested in is carnivorous plants. I actually went to a museum and got to talk to a carnivorous plant expert and asked her all kinds of questions. And so all these carnivorous plants have one thing in common is that they secrete this liquid that looks like nectar to, to insects. It smells like it. It's sweet. And so the insect is attracted to this plant. It eats eats off of these tentacles and it's filling its own stomach. But as it does that, that, that sweet liquid is actually extremely sticky. And so it starts sticking to the insect and it starts folding in so that other uh, tentacles are now sticking to the insect as well. And it's not actually nectar. It's actually digestive fluid. And so as the insect is eating the, this fluid, the fluid is actually eating it. And isn't that a perfect 
understanding of sin and addiction. The sin that we feast on is actually feasting on us. The sin that we're trying to fill our soul with, right? Trying to satisfy our desires with. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to be bored. We don't want to feel pain. We want to be valued. We're feasting on the sin, but after a while, we feel its tentacles around us, its stickiness. And addiction um, comes to a point where we're not able to get out anymore. We can't stop. We hate it, but we can't become free. And we, so as we're feasting in our sin, it is actually also feasting on us. Look at these three words in James chapter 1, 13 through 15. After desire has uh, conceived, it gives birth to sin. Then sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So we have this progression right here. Desire, sin, and death. It, it says in the beginning of this passage, it's evil desire. And I think that's only because of where the desire is pointed. So the desire in and of itself is neutral or even God-given. But as we take the desire and point it towards sin, it becomes evil. If we pointed it towards God, it would become a, a good desire. But as we point it to sin, we then bring sin into our life. And this sin, as we eat it, starts eating us. Remember, the nature of sin is that it develops and grows. It matures. It matures into addiction. But addiction itself in its very nature, matures. It matures into um, more addictive tendencies, right? Whatever you were addicted to, whatever satisfied you, satisfies you in this point in time will not satisfy you in three months. You're going to need more. You're going to need more explicit, more intense, more deviant, uh, more hardcore. And sin, as it matures, leads to death. So in our series, it applies to all addiction, but I, I have sexual addiction as our landing point. And so when you think about, about desire, we're, we're saying sexual desire. And when we look at sin, we're pointing now to porn, hooking up, other sexual acts. And then when you look at death, you look at how porn and hookups lead into rape, sexual assault, and human trafficking, right? At the end of the day, rape culture is rampant in pornography. And the worst nightmare of a woman becomes the fantasy of a man. Think about how deviant that is. Because a lot of times when we talk about pornography, it's so normalized. It's okay. When I look at every stand-up comedian, they have a huge segment on pornography in the most like, it's like eating, right? It's like they talk about food and they talk about porn and it's the same thing to them. And we can start becoming desensitized in the same way. But do we believe that sin, all sin leads to death? Do we believe that porn leads to death? Because a really shallow, legalistic, religious perspective is that we don't sin because it's in the rule book. That Christianity is just do's and don'ts. And that's not a deep, thoughtful theology. A deep, thoughtful theology is saying, I'm not, 
I'm not going to do this sin because I believe that it will master me and lead me to death. That is a thoughtful theology. Don't just not sin because someone told you not to do it. Don't just not sin because you know that Christians aren't supposed to do it. Don't sin because you believe through God's word that it leads to death. I went to this conference called Q, and it's basically the TED Talk in, in Christian world. Very expensive to go into. I had a, a great sponsor. And one of the segments was a woman who had a nonprofit, and their focus was rescuing people who have been trafficked. And they shared horrific stories. They talked about this woman who escaped her sex trafficker, had nowhere to go. Oftentimes they get them into heroin and other drugs to bring them back because they need their next fix. And psychologically, it's very hard to escape um, someone who has entrapped you if you have nowhere to go. And so after a few days, she returned to her trafficker, which is um, more common than you'd think. And to send a message to all the girls, he lit her on fire and threw her body on the street so that all the women in L.A. would know that this is what happens when you try to run away. She had a Q&A section. And I sat there. Um, and then I posed this question. I asked her, help me draw the line between a college student watching porn on his computer and this woman who's been killed on the street. And I said college student because I wanted to build a separation between me and this hypothetical <clears throat> man. But there was none. And God knew that. And I think she knew that too. She locked eyes with me. And she wouldn't let go. It made me extremely uncomfortable. And then there was this like conviction in her eyes. And she said that the same women who are trafficked are the same ones in strip clubs, are the same ones on the streets, are the same ones on those videos. She said that loudly and forcefully. And she said that when she rescues these women, they are most traumatized by the porn because it captures them being abused again and again. And it's, it's never erasable. It, it stains the rest of their life. Do you believe that sin leads to death? Not just your death, but the death of so many others around you. You know, if, you're, if you are a young man, or young woman, caught up in pornography, I really implore you to go to our sexual addiction workshop because you have such a, a chance. You have the best chance right now to become free, to become sober so that the rest of your life can be coursed in a different way. If you're engaged and you're struggling with sexual addiction, if you're watching porn this year, if you've seen it one time this year, come out to this workshop so that you can preserve your marriage and be faithful to this woman you fell in love with and have your eyes on her. If you're married or married with kids, please come to this workshop because you're saving your marriage. Um, you're saving the innocence of your children. You know, 
um, freedom and sobriety doesn't just happen. I've talked to so many men in their 50s and 60s still struggling with the same addiction. You don't just get to walk out. If you could have, and you're a Christian, you would have already. You would have done it at the last retreat, the last time you prayed and confessed your sin, the last sermon you heard, right? Freedom and sobriety doesn't just happen. It takes hard work. The therapist I've talked to said that with hard work, two to five years, you're working at it and it takes two to five years. And that's what I'm convicted to accomplish and course out for our church is a two to five year course where we stick on this and we find and carve a path forward. And this workshop is even just the beginning of that, even though it's two months. Secondly, you develop deep friendships. You know, this uh, is such an area of shame and isolation for most of us. We rarely share when we do. It's kind of these one-offs. But it's easier just to erase our history or to go on a private browser and to just kind of try to segment this part away from the rest of our lives. But sin festers in the darkness. It's in light that we grow and have life. It's in the light of community with God and ourselves and others that we're able to find freedom. My closest friend has come out of an accountability group that I've been a part of for like 10 years now. And when you sit down and every week share about sexual addiction, you're kind of an open book on everything else. Like, okay, you saw the worst parts of me. What else do you want to know? You know, like... What do I have to hide after that? Yeah, I got in a fight with my wife. I yelled at my child and, you know, I struggle with this other thing. But it's easy because the worst of me is already in front of you. And you've learned to accept um, and walk with the worst of me. And I've learned to do that with you. And isn't that so different than how we've been taught to do church? Church is often the best of us. Church is often our shiniest. But Jesus meets people at their worst. And I hope our church can do that as well. I hope that you gain some really amazing friendships out of this workshop. And a part of this workshop and why I'm going to ask for a lot of commitment, the first one's kind of open invite. Just come, learn about it, learn about what we're going to do, get some vision. But after that, it's basically like you got to come every week. Because we're trying to set up over eight weeks men's and women's um, accountability groups. And consistency is just a big part of that. And so are you willing to do that? And lastly, of course, we want life instead of death. James chapter 1 verse 16 to 18 says, Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's not like the pagan gods. He doesn't change. He's anchored. He's rooted. He's consistent. He's faithful. And he gives good and perfect gifts. When we think about our theology, is God the one giving us the good and perfect gifts? And sin, the one taking it from us. Because a superficial view of our religion is that God's a killjoy. He's taking away the best things in life, right? He's, he has the do not list three miles long. And the do list seems really boring. 
So is that where you're at in your faith? Or do you have a theology where God gives good gifts and sin brings death? Otherwise, you're just living rules and you're not living in relationship with God. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all his creation. There's so much theology there, but I want us just to continue on our theme and landing point. So as we turn our desire away from sin towards the Father, we learn to trust in the Father for life and for good gifts. And that's what trials and temptation does. It tests our faith. It shows us whether we really trust in God or whether we're trusting in the sin to fulfill our needs and desires. And it's in those points of trials and temptations that we that our faith is shown or what our faith is in, is in is shown. We get to see the reality of, of who we actually trust, of who we actually serve, of who is our God. Lastly, good <clears throat> gifts are from the Lord. And so when we look at sexual desire we, and we trust in the Father, we believe that he gifts us with marriage and healthy relationships. Let me make a statement to you. God loves sex. Have you ever heard that? God loves sex? Is this a surprise to you? Because growing up at church, I thought God hated sex and that being a Christian meant annihilating it, right? Another really legalistic perspective. Like being a good Christian means that we're not sexual and we annihilate all of our sex drive. In most of my church life, we were either silent or sexuality was seen as dirty. But God loves sex. He created it. He made the sexual organs, the nerve endings, the pleasure sensors in the brain, and the mutual ecstasy of intercourse. The clitoris is the only organ that has no function except sexual pleasure. God has a dedicated organ for sexual pleasure. He made sex to celebrate life and create it at the height of love and euphoria. It's his most powerful tool in uniting two people so that they are one in body, mind, and soul. When we have sex, we are free to feel vulnerable with the person we trust most, valued in undivided attention with the person who has loved us for years. And we mark each other's soul and memories with the person who will always be in our future. The irony is that sex addicts do not love sex, but hate it. Like a glutton doesn't really love food. She doesn't taste the sweet and bitter and, and spicy. She hates it. He vomits it up and yells at it. An alcoholic doesn't enjoy the layers of fine whiskey or wine. He drinks cans of Bud Light until he blacks out. A person obsessed with her body doesn't love beauty. She sees every inch of her body with disdain and envy and displeasure and is blind to her true value. So sex, so in the same way, sex addicts hate sex and devalues it. It's rushed. It's meaningless. It's eventually disdained as acts of shame in her soul. 
And he is unable to have deep connection with women anymore. You see, God loves sex. He wants us to love it too. My prayer for you, brothers and sisters, and for myself, I'm not a sage, I'm not a guru, I'm not even a leader in this. I've worked hard for 10 years, and I still stumble and fall amidst all the progress I've made. So I'm doing this for me, and I'm doing this with you, alongside of you, shoulder to shoulder. We are going to take ground together. So in the sexual addiction workshop, uh, I invited my, ve- my close friend Roy Kim, who has done podcasts on this, who have, has been certified, done research. He's the one who's going to guide and walk us through it. And we're not going to be perfect. We're, relapse is part of recovery. But what if, what if our church was willing to fight this together? What if we had men and women who loved sex and purity, who are trying at this point to hold out for our future husband and wife, who looked at men and women not with eyes of sex and lust, but as family? What if we were those people? What kind of lights would we be in the darkness? What kind of community would we have? What kind of relationships would we have? You know, again, you might not be willing to make to do this with us for eight weeks, but would you just come to one meeting? Would you just sit anonymously under like a random phone number or whatever, however you want to do that, um, and just listen and consider starting the journey? And for others of us, we've been looking for a way out for since junior high or elementary school or high school. And I really believe that God's uniquely carved out this time for us to do this with each other um, for our community. Father, we're just so grateful. Um, I'm so grateful for this church that has a sign that hangs for imperfect people only, for imperfect pastors only. What a blessing it is to have a church that I get to live and walk authentically with. I don't take that lightly. It's not something I've taken for granted. It's humbling. And today I offer that where I am at, who I am, to my brothers and sisters. I offer taking another step with them in this 25-mile journey. But I think that it's not just about sobriety. That over the 25 miles, we'll love each other and know each other in deep ways. We'll see your grace and fall in love with you. And we'll be able to experience your good and perfect gift of sex in ways that the world will never get. Call us, Lord, move us in this time. I just want to pause and, and, and as your eyes are closed in this moment, would you simply hear and ask if God wants you to be a part of this workshop? If he wants you to RSVP right now, 
you know, I'd say, man, if you fell into pornography this year, if you hooked up at all this year, um, this workshop's for you. Jesus, would you just call people in this moment to be a part of this, not for eight weeks, but until we find freedom? In Jesus' name.